Well, what a great opportunity we have once again to open the Word of God together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn in them to our study of the book of Jude. Many of you have been telling me how much this book is impacting your thinking, and for that I am certainly thankful and grateful to God that He is doing what He desires to do in your own hearts as you interact with the Word and how it impacts your own soul. It is one of, of course, the smallest epistles in the New Testament, and yet it is one of the most powerful. I I probably say this about every book that I study, that it is my most favorite book of the Bible, and I would say that about Jude even now because I'm enjoying it so much as I learn the message of Jude and what it has for us. And it all hinges for us really on verse 3. Verse 3, of course, we know this is only 25 verses in this entire letter. And yet verse 3 is where it all hinges. When Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's interesting for us to understand that the intention of Jude was to write a more peaceful letter, a less confrontational letter, a letter that was more intended to really revel in the camaraderie that we have in the gospel, one in which we could rejoice with every other Christian concerning the great doctrine of salvation the doctrine of our justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Word of God alone. And yet, something more urgent was necessary. Something was more more importantly needed to be addressed. And so he exhorts all of us, who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, as we even heard spoken about earlier, that we are, as Jude says, the called, those who are beloved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We are true Christians. Those who have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ are hereby exhorted in this little letter by Jude to contend for the faith. A faith that has been once for all delivered to the holy ones, you and I, the saints. And by that, Jude means the gospel and all that accompanies it in living by faith. In other words, not just the words of the gospel, not just the truth of Jesus Christ and that He is God, that He is God incarnate, that there is no salvation and no other name under heaven by which any man must be saved, as Paul, or as the writer of Acts says, Luke says in Acts 4. But everything that accompanies it, everything that it produces in the life of one who is saved, one who genuinely knows Jesus Christ, isn't just acquiescing to the terminology, but rather is genuinely saved. That's what Jude means when he says that I'm urging you to contend for the faith. In other words, we are called to a fight. We are called to engage in polemical argumentation if necessary. We're called to guard the truth of Scripture. 
because lives depend upon it. Because individual people, cultures, nations, in fact, the world itself depends upon the gospel. Having been alive now for nearly 58 years on this planet and 53 of those years, I have been in and around the evangelical church. I have seen the truth under attack continuously. I didn't know that was the reality in my young years in the church, but the longer I am in pastoral ministry, I see it more and more. And it's really not a surprise in some senses that we would see the attack on the truth from the culture. The culture rejects truth outrightly. The culture defines what truth is by their own lives, by their own makings, their own mind. They determine what truth is in their own minds. And they may tacitly say, even in speaking, that there is a God, but that God has no real effect upon their lives at all. And so for you and I, as we look at culture around us, as we interact with the society in which we live, it is no surprise that they attack the truth. But what comes with greater destructive force is when the truth is attacked in the church. When it is attacked under the title of Christianity. When is it attacked under the guise of being biblical? There is no greater attack on the true church today than that of Catholicism. Catholicism claims to know God. Catholicism today claims to be leading people into a relationship with God. They claim to believe in Jesus Christ. And yet, Catholicism denies the very justification needed to be saved and the justification of which the Bible clearly speaks about. They say that in order to be justified before a holy and righteous God, that one needs not simply believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior, but also they must fulfill the seven sacraments of the church. You must carry out exactly what the church says according to the seven sacraments of the church and the grace that is needed by God must be infused into your life through the accomplishments of those sacraments. And even with all of that accomplished, there still needs to be prayers made on your behalf after you die in order to extricate you from the fabricated place of purgatory. All of that is blasphemous. All of that is outright heresy. And all of that will only damn those who follow it to an eternal hell. This is what makes it so dangerous. Because it masquerades as truth. 
Catholicism is dangerous by way of its own religious fabrications and liberalism in the church is just as dangerous because liberalism is fabricated truth. It is justifying itself by way of its own makeup. It is adjusting the truth for the sake of its own will. And I wonder sometimes what we are doing as Christians at guarding the truth. Paul said to Timothy at the end of Timothy in chapter at the end of First uh, Timothy in chapter six, he said, verse twenty, guard what has been entrusted to you. Guard what has been entrusted to you. That is a mandate to all who know Jesus Christ by faith that we have to guard the truth. We have to guard it. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Of course, that treasure is the very same truth that Jude is exhorting us as Christians to contend for. Over in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul continues to explain it further. He says this, quote, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy, listen, you received the truth. You got it from me. You heard it. these trusted words. You heard the truth. And now you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to guard the truth. You have a responsibility to to take care of the treasure that you have been given. And the way you take care of that treasure that you have been given is you pass it on to the next generation. You cannot just be a receptor. You cannot just be a bucket filled up. You must be one who pours out. And so this is what we are being exhorted to do in Jude. We are being exhorted to guard the truth. We are being exhorted to fight for it, to pass it on, to give it in an undiluted fashion. And the most dangerous part of this battle goes on inside the church. I was speaking to someone this week about this text that I'm in here. And I said, one of the saddest things to me about pastoral ministry is the fact that over the years of ministry, this has been a reality of the church. The church has to fight for the truth, not so much against the cultural war, but against what's in the church. It goes against, in the church, it goes against rejectors of the truth. That's what we're talking about here. Even though they call themselves Christians, but are without the Holy Spirit and without salvation. That's the battle in the church. Guarding the truth against those who are not of the truth. Notice how what Jude calls them. Notice how he describes these people. Verse 4, he says, they are ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness 
and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not be shocked, but Jude is talking about some in the church. And he's actually talking about apostate people in the church. We don't often use the word apostate in our everyday language, and maybe we should. Maybe we should use it more. What is an apostate? What is an apostate? Well, by way of just a simple definition for us, an apostate is a person who says that they believe the gospel, but by their very teaching and by their very lives, they deny the gospel. That's just a simple definition. Several years ago, Dr. MacArthur preached a message from Second Peter on discovering and uncovering the fakers or the pretenders, I think it was called. Anyway, he said in that sermon about the false, he said, quote, apostasy is the abandoning of truth. The abandoning of truth. He said, it's not to be, it's not to be confused with mere indifference to the word because apostasy involves the intellectual acceptance of the scriptures. He went on to say, and it should not be confused simply with error. Why? Because it's not necessarily believing false doctrine. An apostate can acknowledge that certain doctrines are true, but fail to believe them in their heart. An apostate can acknowledge Christ without accepting Christ. Apostates have received light, but they have not received life. They have known and accepted the written word, but have never met Christ, the living word. Now get this, here's the point. Apostasy is a deliberate rejection of the truth after knowing it. Let me say that again. Apostasy is the deliberate rejection of the truth after it is known. MacArthur went on to say that is what makes it the most damnable sin. Somebody who knows the truth and then stomps across it, beloved, they deserve a severe punishment than any others who didn't know it at all. This is what the Bible teaches us over and over again. The Bible says in John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The word abide means to remain or to continue. In other words, true disciples never turn their backs on the truth. That doesn't mean they don't sin. Certainly we sin. Even true Christians sin. We, we have the, the flesh. We have to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So it doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean that you and I don't disobey. God chastens those whom He loves, Hebrews 12 says. 
but we don't willfully reject the truth. We don't willfully turn our back on it. The true Christian remains. So what Paul said to the Colossian believers, Colossians 1, verse 21 through 23, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, see that out of the heart, the life flows, so your, your, your mind is hostile to the things of God, and so you engage in evil deeds, and yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. You see, Paul is simply saying genuine Christians remain steadfast in the faith. They are those who are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We saw this in our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And he said, quote, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. He said, for the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls in it and brings forth vegetation useful to those whose forsake it was tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless, close to being cursed. In the end, it's being burned. All of these passages really are just highlighting to us the great danger for those who have been exposed to the gospel, those who have heard the truth, those who have seen the testimony of the truth. They've seen the transforming power of God through the gospel in the lives of those around them on display, and yet they reject it. They turn their back. It's not for me. The bottom line is that unless a person continues with Christ, as the Bible declares it to be, they will not see Christ no matter what they claim. They are not real. The reality is that there are people who will receive the Word, but will only receive it superficially and they eventually depart from it and return to their old ways. And in the meantime, they're in the church. In the meantime, they are sometimes people of influence within Christianity. Remember what Peter said, they secretly introduced destructive heresies. 
That word secretly means that they get into the very fabric of everything. They're infiltrating everything. This is what we see today in the evangelical church. There are false teachers that fill the shelves of the electronic Christian bookstores that are out there who write books that claim to know the truth and they know nothing of the truth. There are professors in seminaries and colleges that claim to know Christ and should not be teaching in any kind of seminary or college. There are others who have filled pulpits of various churches. Some are on the radio, some are on television. They're continually perpetuating their subtle lies. Whatever area of influence they have, they use it to destroy the church and the lives of those who follow them. And so this is real. This is happening today just as it was happening in Jude's day. And so Jude is warning us because each and every one of us has a responsibility and each and every one of them is described in the same way. They are ungodly persons and their ungodliness is manifest in the same way. They abuse the grace of God and deny Christ with their life. They have no real reverential fear for God. And therefore they assume that God's grace can be taken for granted and they live any way they want to. They're actually denying the very one whom they claim they are following. And so Jude begins here to give us examples of what is to come upon every faker. Just how does God see the false? How does God see the faker, the apostate? Well, verses 5 through 7 gives us three examples from history. Three examples from history. And the history really goes beyond our even human history into angelic history. And all of it has the same result. Let me just read these verses for us. You follow along, verses 5 through 7. Jude says, Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds and under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what is Jude doing? Well, what do we have here in verses 5 through 7? Well, we have three illustrations, at least, three examples for us to learn about God's divine judgment upon the false. In verse 5, you have the false Hebrews or the 
false Israelites. In verse 6, you have the false angels. And in verse 7, you have false Gentiles. False Jews, false angels, false Gentiles. And all of these throughout throughout history and before the history of man all face the same divine judgment for their rebellion. That is simply to say, and we ought to learn this quickly, that is for us that here Jude is demonstrating that God does not change. God does not change. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of today, is the same God of the New Testament. God does not change. His holiness is the same today as it was in the when, when time began, as it was before time began, as He created all things, all who reject Him will not go unpunished. The world can tell us that we're wacky. The world can say that we're religious fanatics. The world can say that we are wrong and they can tie us to stakes and they can throw us in jail and they can do all kinds of forms of persecution they want to do against the Christian. The reality is all who reject Jesus Christ will not go unpunished. Mark that down, lock it in your minds, keep it solid in your heart, and have that be a conviction that stands you solidly where you ought to stand. No one who rejects Jesus Christ will go unpunished, especially those who claim to know Him, but they are false. Let's look at the first example in verse 5. Jude says, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all. You can stop right there for a moment. Jude is just simply saying, I'm just trying to remind you of what you already know. This isn't new information. This shouldn't surprise you that you're hearing this. You already know these things. The truth that I'm about to share with you has been taught to you before. It may not have been taught in a formal setting, but you know the history. You know the reality of what took place. It's part of your very heritage, he is saying. You have heard of, the, of what the apostles have written about, and you know the history of the Jewish people. In other words, it's very basic. This is very basic Old Testament history. And of course, he begins with the greatest story of the whole Old Testament. The story of God's rescue of the Hebrew people from the nation of Egypt. That very event, in fact, is memorialized in the Passover feast. The very Passover Seder that the Jewish people even today celebrate speaks of the reality of God's deliverance of the people. And it's a perpetual reminder to them of the great exodus from Egypt and God's saving of them in a gracious way under His mighty hand. So Jude says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, you already know this. You already know this, that the Lord, after saving the people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. You see, the emphasis is on the Old Testament example. That's why the Old Testament is here. It's been written as an example for us to follow. We ought to learn from the Old Testament. 
And the Old Testament example that he's showing us here is the reality that the rejection of God by the people of whom God had miraculously delivered should not be happening with people today. We all know the story, Jude says. You remember, Jude says, this is, this is, I'm going to remind you, but you know this, you remember how God brought the plagues described in the book of Exodus. You remember those plagues? How God led the Hebrew people through a series of miracles and led them out to the, to the sea with the ocean in front of them and the mountains on the side and the Egyptians pursuing from behind. You remember all that and how God crossed the sea with them on dry land with walls of water on both sides. And when they got to the other side, as the Egyptians were entering, you remember how God closed the water down on them. And so the people saw the corpses laying around on the shore. You know that the Lord led them to a place called Kadesh Barnea to enter into the promised land and all that God had ever promised to them was just laid out before them. And what did they do? Numbers 13 and 14 tells us what they did. They sent out spies into the land. They're at the precipice of the promised land and they look over and they send out spies into the land. They did that in spite of the fact that God had shown himself faithful all the years. God had fulfilled everything he had said. God had brought them out through miracles. God had saved them from the Egyptian army. He had cared for them all the way through the Exodus, all the way to this point. And they send out spies to spy out the land to see if it's going to be okay for them to go. And the spies come back and they say to the people, the people of the land are too big. We're just like grasshoppers. They're giants. Except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb trusted the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, you can see the rejection of God happening. You can see the people and the collective heart of the people of Israel saying, we don't want God. The people come to Moses and they say, why don't you take us back to Egypt? We'd be better off there, Moses. You, you brought us out here. We're all going to go into the land and die. It's, it's going to be the end of everything. They're standing against Moses and Aaron. But they're really rejecting God. They didn't trust in God. They didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't believe in God anymore. In fact, they were false people. They were false. Even though they had seen the power of God on display, even though they had seen God's miraculous work right before their eyes, even though they had been participants of the very grace of God as He was saving them, they were rejecting God. 
Listen, beloved, don't sit here this morning in your own heart and say, yeah, but that was the people of Israel. Because listen, each and every one of us has seen a history of God's faithfulness. Each and every one of us sitting here this morning has seen the reality of God's provision and God's care and God's love. They saw God bring all the plagues. They saw God destroy the whole Egyptian army in a body of water and they just walked through on dry land. You'd think after even one of those they would just praise God in every kind of way. No one would ever turn away. And yet soon after that happens, they're standing on the edge of the promised land and they're rejecting God. Turn over to Numbers chapter 14. We got to see this. Because God judges with severe punishment. Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. This was after the report of the spies. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Notice what happens. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly and of the congregation of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared. It's like two kids fighting in a playground. One's about to strike the other one. The parent shows up. Now God shows up. The glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting and all the sons, to all the sons of Israel. Then God pleads. God sees Moses and Moses pleads for the people. Notice verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? Moses goes to the leader whom God had appointed as leader over Israel to lead them. All right, Moses, how long do I have to put up with this people? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I've performed in their midst. Move aside, I'm going to smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. 
God says to Moses, I don't need any of these people. Get out of the way, Moses. I'll keep you four around you, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua. I'll keep you guys. We'll make a nation out of you. All these rest, they're going to be done. Why? Because they don't believe me. Moses says to the Lord, the, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength, you brought up a people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while the cloud stands over them and and you went before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So if you slay this people as one man, then the nations will have heard of your fame. They will say, because the Lord couldn't bring this people into the land, which he promised by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. In other words, they're going to mock you. Lord, if you slay this people, even these disobedient people, they're going to, the nations around are going to mock you. Moses said, but now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. In other words, I'm not asking you to do anything that you not aren't, Lord. But let the Lord, you are slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but you will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the children, to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Verse 20, the Lord responds. All right, I have pardoned them according to your word. What happened? Moses interceded. Moses prayed. God said, okay. Okay, but I'll tell you this. These people have put me to the test. Notice verse 22. Surely all of them men whom have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. That's an interesting verse. They put me to the test these ten times. He's almost indicating from the very beginning, from the very first miracle I showed them. They didn't believe me. They put me to this test this ten times. Not shall by no means, none of them shall see the land which I swore to their fathers, verse 23, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Only my servant. In other words, I'm not going to to kill them all in, in one spot right here, Moses. I'm not going to just wipe them off the face of the earth in one fell swoop, but I'll tell you this, they're no, never going to enter the promised land. They're never going in. And then notice down in verse 27, Moses and Aaron they're listening and the Lord's speaking. He says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? For I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. So say to them, as I live, says the Lord. How long is that? As long as the Lord lives. How long is that? 
That's forever, folks. That's forever. As I live, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness." According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days you spied out the land, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year. So 40 years, and you shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they shall die. I go back to Jude. This is the very moment that Jude is talking about in Jude verse 5. God, after rescuing the people out of the land of Egypt, destroys those who didn't believe Him. Destroys those who, who were beneficiaries of His great power and His rescuing, and yet they rejected Him. And for us, it's an illustration. It's an illustration of the fate of those who, having been exposed to the power and truth of God, then feign to believe it and ultimately reject God. God is going to condemn and judge and destroy the false. And Jude is saying, here's the first example of it. You know it. You know it's true. You know these things. It's an example of the very reality you and I must not forget. God will destroy the false. Illustration number two. False angels. Unbelieving angels. Verse six. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode... He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Once again, Jude gives us a very undefiled, undiluted description. These angels aren't specifically identified for us. We we have no names attached to them. And yet, as he said in verse 5, they already know about them. You know this. So which angels is Jude referring to if they know this? Well, I believe that he's speaking of those angels who participated in the rebellion against God written about in Genesis chapter 6. You say, why? Well, primarily because Jude is equating their actions with those of the false. What action was that? The actions that were already stated in verse 4. They are ungodly who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, these angels acted in the same kind of rejecting heart way. They abused the grace of God and went outside their own domain and abandoned their proper abode, as he says in verse 6. That's the first reason I believe it's those angels. We'll look at it in a second. And also I believe that these are the same angels that Peter is referring to in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 when Peter uses angels as his example of the judgment of God upon those who are not steadfast. And he says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. And then thirdly, I believe it's those angels of Genesis chapter 6 because Jude equates their activity to be in the likeness of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, they went after strange flesh, as he says in verse 7. So go over to Genesis chapter 6 for a moment. Genesis chapter 6. Notice what it says in verses 1 through 4. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, that by the way, when it talks about into that, that's talking about, sexual relationship. Those words are specific. Came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Of course, we understand that following that event, what happened? Well, God judges the world through the worldwide flood. Following that reality, we have the flood that happens and only preserves eight people. And so just like the false today, so too these angels, just like the false don't stay in their own position, in their own abode, so too these angels did not stay within their own position and went outside the gracious place of God that He had assigned to them. What was their place? The glories of heaven. And in their rebellion, they rejected God. They wanted nothing to do with God over them. And they descended to earth and took on themselves that which was not for them. They went after strange flesh. They abused the grace of God and lived their own way. And thereby denied God denied His rule and mastery over them. And so just like the false, the false of before, they were willfully sinful. Jude says they abandoned their abode. We notice here in John or in Genesis 6, they willfully did this. They saw that the beautiful women on the earth and they chose to go and take women for themselves so that they might have relations with them. 
discontented with what God had done for them, discontent with what God had done and was doing with them. They were just like Israel. They rejected God's rule over them. And so their sin was essentially the same. It was self-exaltation against God. That's what it was. Self-exaltation against God. And it should be a warning to all of us. Notice back in Jude, verse 6, it's a warning. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. One commentator said it this way, quote, those who do not keep what God entrusts to them are therefore not to be trusted, unquote. It's kind of an interesting comparison with verse 1 because those who are God's people, the called, they are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And yet those who reject God, who have seen the grace of God, who have witnessed the power of God in the very reality of their life, He has kept and rejected it. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. I love that. Whether it's redemption or whether it's condemnation, God's the one who does the keeping. God does the keeping. God is light. They are in darkness. They are without God, suffering forever. And so Jude says the false uh, of ancient Israel, the, the ancient Hebrews, the, those who were false then who rejected God, they were destroyed for their unbelief. And angels who didn't keep their domain, who, who abandoned God, who rejected God, didn't keep their own place, He has kept in judgment. Then He gives a third illustration here in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality. In the same way as these. They indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And therefore they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The Old Testament is here for us to read. It's here for us to learn by way of example what to do and what not to do. And Sodom and Gomorrah is therefore an example. It's an example to us because they had the punishment of eternal fire. Just as the angels before them are bound for the day of great judgment and just like those in Israel who fell in the wilderness, God destroys. All who have rebelled against God. All who have said to God, yeah, we know you're true. We know you're right. Yeah, we see it, but we don't want it. And here Jude recounts for us once again their sin. It was sexual immorality and unnatural desires. In other words, they knew the truth. You say Sodom and Gomorrah knew the truth? Yeah, Lot was there. Lot lived among them. 
In fact, he spoke about the wrongness of their desires, and they refused to listen to Lot. You say, really? Yeah. Listen, Genesis 19, verses 1 to 11, just listen to this. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said to him, no, we'll, we'll spend the night out here in the square. And he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them, and they baked unleavened bread, and and they ate. And before they went to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old. All the people from every quarter. It's just phrase after phrase after phrase. It wasn't like an isolated group. This is all the town, everyone. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may have relations with them. They wanted to do what was unnatural. Lot went out. He went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. There's the truth. There's Lot standing up saying, no, this is wrong. You should not be doing this. You cannot do this. Lot even offers his daughters. I have two daughters who have not had relations with a man. Please let let me bring them out to you and, and you can do to them what you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, no, stand aside. This one Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien to us, and already he's acting like our judge? Now we will treat you worse than them. Really? You don't want us to do that with them? Watch what we do to you, Lot. So they pressed hard against Lot. Came near to break the door down. I think they were, they were trying to rip Lot's garments off him so they could do worse to him what they wanted to do with these others. What happened? The men reached out the door. The men, the angels, brought Lot into the house and shut the door. Struck the men who were there at the doorway of the house with blindness. Who did he strike? Both small and great, it says. All of them. So that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. They wore themselves out trying to exercise their sinfulness. They knew the truth. They knew the truth. They willfully rejected it. Get out of our way, you who speak truth. And if you don't get out of our way, we'll do worse to you. Listen, beloved, this is the heart of everyone who is false. And this will be the punishment for all who willfully reject the truth, whether it be overt or covert. They reject it secretly or outwardly. They're going to undergo the punishment of eternal fire, Jude says. But what have we learned? This is an example to us. What have we learned? Well, for one thing, we are aware that we must be on guard for the false, aren't we? Certainly aware that we should be on guard for the false, not only the presence of them among the church, but the subtle nature of their ways. 
How are you going to know the subtle nature of their ways? By how they live. How do they live? <clears throat> they live according to the word of God or do they live by their own desires? Do they claim to know Christ, but they live out their lusts in open rebellion? That's one thing we've learned. But secondly, we've also seen the reality of their future. We've seen the reality of the future of all who reject by way of illustration. So how do we contend for the faith? How do we contend? First, be true to the scriptures. Be true to the scriptures. Know the Bible and be faithful to it. Know what the word of God says. Know what it means by what it says and live out what it means by what it says faithfully. And secondly, faithfully support all those who truly honor the truth without compromise. You see someone standing for the truth without compromise, stand with them, support them. And then third, give your own uncompromising testimony to the truth of God's word. How? By living it? Proclaiming it? No matter what the cost? Jesus said, unless you take up your cross daily and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Listen, beloved, that's how we go through the Christian life. We go through the Christian life contending for the faith and building up the church. Contending for the faith building up the church. May God help us be victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the testimony of history. Lord, we certainly don't want history to repeat itself in that way. Certainly not in our life. We know that true Christians remain, and we know that you are the one that keeps us. We know that any reason why we even believe anything today is because of your hand, your guiding hand upon us, your care for us. And we thank you for that, Lord, even in the times when we're downtrodden, even in the times when we are spiritually in a low place because we foolishly have maybe followed other things, our own thinking, our own minds, and we don't run to the truth. Lord, help us to just staunchly rely there, stand there. Know that your truth is true. Your word is true and that it is objective. It is not subjective in any way. That it is a foundation upon which we can stand. No matter what happens, no matter if the rest of the world goes another direction, we can stand on your word knowing it's right. And that you will sustain us and hold us. No truer words can be than from that song. You hold us fast. We're thankful. Thankful for your word this morning, Lord. Help us to contend for the truth. Passing it on diligently to others and living it out in our own lives. And we'll give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.